Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we discuss a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Boyas. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. Yes, indeed we are. And welcome back. It's been quite a while. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode seven of season three. And we're going to be talking about my product design degree final project, which was a citizen science product called Correlate. Uh, Last episode, we learned about the history of Monopoly. George did some kind of incredible research into this iconic game and everything that came behind it and the anti-monopolist politics that existed in the US. And yeah, be sure to check out that episode and any others that tickle your fancy after this, as always. Indeed. It's been a while. Yeah, um, really has. Apologies for that. We've been um, busy, I think. Definitely Pablo's been busy. Yes. I have um, been busy just doing other stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, as, as of two weeks ago, I am no longer a university student. I have submitted my illustrated final thesis, whatever you want to call it. Interestingly, everyone called it something different, which I find quite funny. But Yeah, we never had a real, like... Because people are like, oh, they've done their dissertations. Ours isn't a dissertation. It is technically a thesis, but they're not really the, the same that other people would think of a thesis being. It's just... Yeah, yeah. when I told my mum I was working on a thesis, and then I kind of showed her how I was doing it, she was like, that's not a thesis. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, yeah, I guess it isn't, but... <laughs> yeah, it's just a sort of... It's like a, but it's kind of as a portfolio, but it's not really a portfolio as well. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it's not really a portfolio either. It is just a final project and you show your process and the research that went into it. But in other news, George has a job. I do. I, I start in two days at the point of recording this podcast, which is terrifying and exciting. So by the time this is out, George is a employed man. I, yeah, I will be actually, won't I? Yeah. Eesh. That's crazy. It is. Well, congratulations. It is crazy. So yeah, I've I've been just on the job hunt kind of in the past few months and managed to worm my way into something. Um, so I'm going to be a junior product designer on a sort of digital design team for this company called Saint Gabin, which are a big French company that do hmm. all sorts of stuff around the world, um, like construction stuff, basically. Cool. So that's going to be me. That's going to be you, digital product designer for single band. Yeah. Do you get business cards? Um, I don't think so. I had an email from my manager the other day giving me some details on what I'm going to be doing next week. And I noticed that CC'd into this email was another George Wyatt, which is, um, when I clicked on it, it was clearly my, my like work email. So that was kind of weird to see. Oh, I, for a minute I thought just by chance you were going to be working with another George Wyatt yeah. and that would have been, that would have been slightly disastrous. That would have been even weirder, yeah. <laughs> no, it's just your new work. Yeah, I presume so. I mean, cool. unless there is another George Wyatt in the company, but... I doubt it. They've probably done that just so that you can reference it from wherever. Yeah, just so that my work email is involved. Are they giving you a work computer? It, they are. See, I, this is another thing that I had a detail on. And it was, it's a little bit ambiguous because... I. I asked, do I need to bring my laptop? And they said in the email, no, they've got a MacBook and a ThinkPad laptop waiting for me. So it's two it's two computers. And they said that I'll find out why on Monday. <laughs> You're going to have to practice typing just with one hand so that you can do both at once, Ooh. kind of Matrix style. It's exciting. It's just a bit scary going into the big, big wide world, work world, isn't it? Yeah, no, I can imagine. But yeah, so that's, that's what I've been doing whilst Pablo has been squirreling away at his, um, well... 
final year project that we're about to learn all about. Indeed we are. So, uh, to get started, I guess I should give some context, and a, a problem statement is a good idea of context, but essentially what I made was a device for recreational scuba divers um, and snorkelers to engage in citizen science, uh, and that essentially would let them collect data on kind of marine health, marine conservation, uh, which can then be used by marine biologists and researchers to determine, you know, what an ecosystem's like and use that information to enact policy change or to create a new little national park or whatever it is you need to do. Uh, citizen science is a funky phrase. Have you ever heard of it before my project, George? I have heard of it, yeah. I did. I had heard of the, the term. I've not, mm. I don't think I've ever been involved in a citizen science Mind you, I suppose, actually, another uh, a piece of citizen science that I have done is we we had all of, our, all of our COVID stuff. And when COVID started, there was, I think it's King's College in London, I want to say, had this Zoe app where you could report every day if you had any symptoms and whether you'd tested and stuff like that. Oh, I remember that. Um, yes. Which was, I guess, that's kind of citizen science. So I did do that for a bit. That is citizen science. That is a form of citizen science. But in general, it's just the practice of getting the public involved in collaborating in scientific research and just kind of growing scientific knowledge. Usually it's contributing to some kind of data monitoring. Sometimes it can be helping with analysis. But the big idea is that there are a whole lot of people out there who care about things and who, when given the tools, will engage. And it's a hell of a lot cheaper to do that than to get professional scientists to do big professional projects which are really really expensive and also during the process you kind of do a whole lot of education into why you know especially around conservation why it's also important so it takes people from posting about ocean plastic on social media to the next level of actually actively in their communities doing things that make a difference because they've learned through citizen science essentially hmm. i really like the idea of citizen science it's it's a really nice way for people, I guess, like myself, who aren't necessarily in the actual research game, um, to feel like they're contributing, which is cool. Yeah, no, it's it's very cool. It's it, it's quite it's quite something, and um, it's not used enough. I'll, I'll be honest; like, it's very successful in bird watching communities in general, because uh, iNaturalist and I can't remember the name of the other app. There's a couple of apps, and you can just get them on your phone, and then essentially, if you see a bird or a bug that kind of interests you you can take a picture of it and upload it and that basically is just a giant database of sightings of species around the place and if you don't really know what it is you can post it as unsure and then someone who recognizes it in your photo can say what it is but none of that exists for the ocean no i was gonna say actually that is another one that i have got involved with before i can't isn't is it the rspca i think it's probably the rspca well, no, RSPB is the bird one, isn't it? In the UK, they do a big garden bird watch every year, where it's like one weekend in the year you have to take you take an hour to just count uh, the, the types and species of bird that you're seeing out your window. So I've done that before. That's a classic, classic case of citizen science. And actually, with bird watching across Europe and uh, in the US, it's quite common for citizen science data to make up like a a good chunk of the research data on bird populations. It's often sixty percent in some places which is kind of crazy. But in marine environments, it's really not used, or at least when it is, it's programs for people who happen to live near to a really important uh, marine environment or dive location, for example. And you 
you know, join some kind of organization, you do lots and lots of training with them on how to professionally collect data. And then you might go on like four or five trips a year with them. And it's just very expensive and it's very high commitment. For, it's essentially only for people who probably own all of their own equipment and do this kind of thing on the weekly basis anyway. So it would just never work for someone who did a few dive holidays a year. Mm. And I guess the thing with citizen science is it's kind of about quantity, isn't it, really? Because you know that the quality you can't guarantee with random members of the public, but it's the quantity of data. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It is just entirely quantity of data. There's obviously some things that you have to kind of, some hurdles you have to get over to make it useful at all. But once you've met that, it's just a case of quantity. And basically what I found as I was looking into this was that most kind of citizen science resources out there for marine projects were just professional resources that had been dumbed down. Mm. So they'd taken whatever was used by big research organizations, big government programs, and then they'd just gone, hmm, let's make this simpler for someone who doesn't have a science PhD. And quite honestly, that is not the way to do it. No, because I guess it's not... It's not really teaching citizens much as trying to check a box, I guess. Yeah, essentially. And it also relies on citizen scientists taking like a training course that you do over three weeks. It costs like $400. So you've got to be really committed to do it. And essentially what I wanted to do was make something that was much more low cost and much more accessible and could be done while you were just casually out diving without taking away from that fun experience. So what I made was a product called Correlate, and it's a fun little pun of, you know, the correlation of data and connection of data points and all that kind of thing. It's a really good name. I didn't instantly get the pun until I heard you say it, I think, because I just read it as Coral 8. And then when you, when, you re- when you said it as Correlate, I was like, oh, hang on, there's more here. Ooh, yeah, it's exactly. Good. I did think about spelling it out, but uh, less fun. Plus the eight has kind of the infinite symbol thing and can mean regeneration and all that crap. Yeah, and it makes a nice uh, But essentially it's a little tablet-y thing. It's not touchscreen. You take it underwater and it's got illustrations of indicator species. So they could be kind of fish or invertebrates or corals that when present are like a good sign of a healthy environment. So I focus this on coral reefs mostly, but it could easily be applied anywhere. Uh, And essentially, just when you see, say you're looking at a butterfly fish, when you see the one that matches the one on your screen, you press the button and the counter goes up by one. And it's really simple. That's all it's really doing. But essentially, it's letting you build this database on the device of at what depth, at what temperature, at what time did you see whatever you saw. And then when you finish your scuba dive or your snorkeling trip or whatever it is, you just plug it all into a laptop and it exports as a CSV in a database format all ready for you to use and send off to researchers wherever they need it. So it just makes the whole process very, very easy. Yeah, that's cool. Because I I guess one of the things that probably intimidates people with citizen science, I don't know if you did much speaking and research, I guess we'll probably get to that. But like, I, I would imagine it kind of intimidates people because people probably think that conducting scientific research is really difficult and really complicated and like you have to take really precise measurements but actually just going yes i saw this fish and then the device that you made can just take all the the sort of it's, it's kind of the base level information but it's it's the quantity of that i guess is really useful isn't it yeah and that's you're absolutely right i did do a lot of research into what kind of data one could collect right So I interviewed a couple of really incredible scientists. Uh, One of them was a guy called Rod Saum, who is a coral expert, to put it simply. Um, He's an advisor on all sorts of like coral conservancy boards. 
Uh, he lives in Hawaii, and he was really cool. And then the other guy was a guy called Nigel Hussey, who is a shark megafauna, big underwater animal man. Um, and they're both marine biologists with years of experience who are really kind of well-respected in their fields. And I interviewed them and asked a lot of questions about, so what kind of data can you get and what's useful and what's easy and what have you done with citizen science? And essentially, it's it's really interesting because things like measuring the size of a fish is really, really difficult without a whole lot of training because everything's magnified underwater and everything gets um, kind of shifted, tilt-shifted based on your viewing angle. So it's really, really difficult to actually write down a centimeter size of a fish that you see 10 meters away. Mm. I'd never even thought about that. Yeah. yeah so when, when marine biologists do training, at least what, what the people I've talked to did, is they had wooden cutouts of different fish species that were laid out essentially on like lines in the distance and pulled along using a rope by like an assistant, right? <laughs> and then it was it was like a you know in a video game where you have to like shoot all the targets within a few number of seconds or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's essentially what it what they do, right? Is they go down scuba diving, they have their eyes shut or they turn around or whatever, and then they flip around, open their eyes, and all of these little wooden fish models from right up close to 10, 15 meters away are slowly being pulled across by the assistants, and you have to guesstimate how big they are. <laughs> And then so you cool. then go and measure it up close. Obviously, because it's not a real fish, you can just put a tape measure to it and you see how off you were. And you just keep doing it until you get your eye into understanding it. So when they do it, they can, within five centimeters range, it'll be like, oh, this is a five to 15 or this is a 20 to 22 or whatever. And what they do for citizen scientists is they say, oh, is it as big as your hand, your arm, your, your hand, your forearm, your full arm or your body, right? Mm. which are kind of separate enough measurements. But quite honestly, the vast majority of what you see is like that hand forearm size. Yeah, I'd be pretty intimidated if I saw a, was diving with a fish that was the size of me. Exactly. No, me too. Um, so everything kind of fits within that smaller size. And that's where the detail is important. And basically everyone I talked to said, don't even bother. Like, don't even look at size. If you're going to do it, say, oh, this is a baby versus an adult. But in any other situation like who cares it's more important on presence or absence of you know did you see this kind of rock cod and then if you did cool did you see 16 of them or three so it's really surprising how little data is necessary to actually have a really huge impact mm. yeah yeah i guess it is just also the, the broadness of the data because something like this you know with, with scale could be happening all over the world at the same time Yes, that's that's entirely the goal. Um, so I worked off of methodologies that had been developed for other citizen science, and it's usually like a survey method is what they tend to do. So they have a tape measure that they take underwater, and it's like 50 meters long, and they lay it out, and then they swim up and down the tape measure, measuring how many fish they see and what size and all that. And I basically transformed that with the help of Rod Sam, who was really great in his advice, and just turned it into a timed swim. So instead of having your tape measures and your belt transacts and your sets, uh, quadrants and stuff to measure specific scientific theory, instead it was just swim north for 20 minutes and then swim south for 20 minutes. Just count everything you see. And because you pick one direction, it means you don't necessarily swim in a circle and count the same fish like five times. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, yeah. Yeah, so it is quite crucial to actually do something, even if it's just following a set route. As long as you don't double back on yourself, it's a lot more reliable. Otherwise, the data is just useless. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Because I was, I mean, I'm just referencing back to me doing a big garden bird watch again. But I remember the way that they did it was that you, you could put down the amount of the same type of bird you saw in one go. So, like, you might see it, maybe you did see a different blue, blue tip the next time but if you're only seeing one you can't be sure so it's just you have to wait until you see two at the same time and then you can say okay there's definitely two here that makes sense i see i see what you mean yeah that's that's essentially like where this all comes from is you've got to be certain yeah and i imagine it's probably is trickier underwater isn't it oh it's definitely it definitely is and and the, the the traditional method is you you have your it's essentially a five meter wide by 50 meter long cube that you create in your mind and anything inside of that you count, anything outside of that you don't. But it means if there's a school of fish just on your periphery, and half of them are inside the two and a half meters away from you, and half of them aren't, you then have to guesstimate how many are on what side and which ones you count and all that kind of thing. Mm. So it was just easier to not even do that. It was just easier to go, no, we're going to go, you're just going to swim in a direction. You're just going to count everything. It doesn't matter how far or close it is. Just don't like turn around and look behind you. Um, and then as long as that methodology is really well documented, then the scientists can look at it and decide how much they trust it. Because a lot of scientists are really not very trustworthy, um, not to badmouth them, <laughs> but if you just give them data and don't explain in very much detail how it was collected and by who, they're not necessarily going to use it in their research. Okay. Is there sort of a, a cutoff point for them on like how how reliable it needs to be is it just that as long as there's a sound methodology to it they can say okay because i mean there's going to be like human error isn't there if someone might accidentally not not click enough times or yeah essentially is it this the methodology just has to be regular it just has to be standard so even if, if it, you know some some people are going to look at the data that is collected with my device and they're going to say for my application this is absolutely not sufficient i'm not going to use it okay yeah yeah but most people should be able to see it and go, no, I, I can see why this would be helpful and whatever and use it at least to some degree, right? Because one of the big things that was identified was, oh, if the citizen scientist completely screws up and all of their data recording is wrong, we don't want to waste the 45 to 60 minutes they've spent, right? So one of the things that was suggested was putting in automatic sensors. So the device actually records temperature and depth every 60 seconds throughout your entire dive to the database. So even if you see nothing, or if you see things and completely screw up your data entry, you still have a data set of ocean temperature and ocean depth, which is really, really, really important, especially with climate change and ocean sea level rise and ocean temperature increase, because all of that has a huge effect on what lives in the ocean, especially coral, which dies very quickly if the temperature gets too mm. high. Interesting. Yeah, uh, but going on into the design kind of process of this, what was really whack was that I didn't have any currently existing products that could be compared to this. So you told me that when I when I came down to your design show a couple of weeks ago, and honestly, that did surprise me because this it seems like a really cool and a good idea, and I I genuinely am surprised that there's not something at least like it out there. There is nothing. So what marine researchers currently use is essentially a slate. So it's just a piece of like plastic, I guess, uh, can be wood. And they have a piece of waterproof paper that's been printed out with some kind of table on top. And then they just use a pencil and they just tick boxes as they see things. I'm actually surprised a pencil works underwater. I've never thought about it. 
And I guess it would. Yep, absolutely. Pencils work underwater. Spoiler alert for later, but I actually got to go scuba diving and test out this project, which was an incredible experience. And sure enough, everyone I was working with just had normal HB pencils as you get them in a box. That was it. This feels like the whole um, NASA inventing the biome and yeah. Soviets just used a, uh, used a pencil meme joke thing, whatever it is. I'd be interested if there is a ocean pen alternative example <laughs> type thing. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, uh, but yeah, basically they just use a slate right now. So you just print out a data sheet of like the names of the species. It's usually the Latin names and then you just tick the boxes whenever you see it. Some citizen science resources might have pictures instead of names. It really varies. But at the end of the day, it's a large little placard thing, which I can tell you immediately is very difficult to swim with. If you have an A4 sized hard plastic thing tied to your hand and you're trying to like swim. Oh, yeah. Very difficult. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. I've not really ever done scuba diving, just as a as a reference point for any listeners and for yourself. I've never I've never really been. I think I did it once in a swimming pool at school. Mm. At school, that's interesting. yeah, just a sort of like a here's a fun thing that happens in the world. Here's have an experience sort of day. That's cool. That's very cool. I wish my school had that. That would have been fun. I mean, obviously, like I I do, I do dive now, so yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it was interesting. So I didn't really have anything to compare it to. So I just kind of worked off of the general range of scuba products. So ranging from the kind of safety equipment that you have through to underwater cameras and slates and kind of technical tools, if that makes sense, just to try and build some kind of understanding of what existed and what I was going to do. But, you know, it was kind of tough. Mm. Yeah, it's... I guess there's quite a lot of... Well, I say there's quite a lot of restrictions, but then people just use pencil. I imagine there's quite a lot of... Sort of... <laughs> restrictions and requirements though on on what can work underwater especially when it comes to an electronics that you ended up developing yeah the main thing was waterproof pressure proof and then i had to be quite conscious of things like uh i didn't want it to be way too bright of a color because that would probably like scare fish um and i also didn't want it to be made of any kind of material that might leach into the water uh and do any damage okay yeah. ecologically but yeah, otherwise it's just, you know, it was a thing and it was kind of interesting to not really be working off of any comparable devices. Uh, so I essentially just, you know, built out a user journey of what I wanted to do. I did a whole bunch of research into pressurization. I was essentially inspired by Tupperware. That was the, the go-to idea of a lid with a little O-ring in it that kind of squished it into place. Okay. Yeah. And then it was just a case of testing, testing, and testing. I, you know, I kind of built a couple of prototypes. I did a whole bunch of stuff with figuring out how waterproof 3D prints were. And what I ended up in the end was I, one larger product, which uh, had all the electronics inside, was fully functional, but didn't look very nice. Like it didn't have the kind of sexy display with all the illustrations and stuff, but it was waterproof. And I tested it in a bathtub and it was good so far that must have been nerve-wracking oh yeah that was you that put was all that effort into the electronics and then you just got to throw it in a bathtub yeah essentially i gotta say the scarier one was actually taking underwater though oh uh, yeah okay because obviously i tried like a bucket and then a bathtub slowly more and more and it was fine did you have any um any worries like when it would like initially when it, it did if it did leak or something like that it was there any moments where like oh crap i've just ruined a load of work sort of thing Oh, absolutely. God, absolutely. There was, it was a few things like the, as I put it under, a few bubbles came from it. And immediately I was like, oh God, that's <laughs> it. You know, I'd pull it out. But that was just literally kind of in the seal, there's a slight gap and there would have been a couple of teeny bits of air. You yeah. Know? 
or when I opened it up, this is more later after scuba diving, when I opened the device up to take out the data, I had silica gel packets inside as a kind of slight attempt to reduce the water in there. And they were wet. They were wet. Oh. And I was like, oh God, oh God, everything's broken. Nothing, everything still worked. But it was just because I happened to be in a very humid place. So as I sealed the device before going diving, I sealed in a fair amount of water that, of course, at pressure then condensed. So it was it was it was interesting that like my waterproofing was fully successful, but it was enough to really spike the anxiety. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, but essentially, yeah, the you know the kind of functional prototype. It's got a little O-ring in it. Everything was it was three D printed, and then I kind of painted uh, glue over it to kind of give it another layer of protection, which just made it sticky all the time, <laughs> which wasn't ideal. <laughs> and then silicon sealant and epoxy to connect all the connectors and make sure that the terminals around the kind of exposed buttons were all sealed up and then on the inside it's just a little arduino circuit board lcd screen nine volt battery and a bunch of soldering and cables that go in between and then i just screwed it all shut and silicon sealed the outside and then put some rubber bands on it for safety so it had like three levels of defense Mm, but it's always coming over i can isn't it Oh, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. I was also very worried that when I went scuba diving, something would happen while I was at depth. And then, of course, when you scuba dive, you can't quickly come to the surface because of safety. You've got to ascend slowly over minutes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, God, if it floods while I'm 15 meters underwater, I'm not going to be able to save it for a while. No. Good. Yeah, that must have been terrifying. (laughs) Yeah. So actually, for safety, I then put it in a second bag. Um, You know, there's like waterproof iPad cases that you can Mm. get. I threw it in one of those just as a double safety thing because I didn't want to... I was diving with a research organization and I didn't want to screw up their work by suddenly having to emergency surface because my device started to leak. So I just wanted to keep it out of the way and make it work. And it's fine. I know it is waterproof. Yeah, I mean, it's just a prototype. You you have that sort of... Exactly. ...leniency on it. It's just a prototype. I think it's just a prototype is basically the um, catchphrase of finding a product designers. It really is. Honestly, like everything was, you know, sh- showing something to someone and them having so many questions about what it actually does. And you just go, oh, it's just a prototype. Yeah. Okay. I think the other thing that I definitely want to hear about, and I imagine anyone listening also wants to hear about, is your your trip to go, go diving with your product. Yes, uh, absolutely. Because this sounds so cool. Let, let's talk about that. Um, I, I do just want to previously mention that the electronics was absolute hell. Oh, yeah. I had never programmed in C++ before which is the language of Arduino, and I essentially had to learn it in three weeks. But at the end of the day, it's 400 lines of code, and it does the whole thing, and it actually works, and I'm very proud of myself. You should be proud. Coding is, it literally is another language, but it's... (laughs) It literally is, yeah. yeah, It's confusing, and and I'm I'm actually just looking at, at, at your coding sort of list that you've got here. It's just gobbledygook to me. So, congrats. Well done. Very cool. Yeah. That sounds about right. I mean, in in essence, it's a program that's displaying a screen. It's checking the sensors for their data, which it receives as a voltage. And then it's translating that into an actual temperature and an actual depth. And then it's just writing everything to an SD card every second. No, not every second, every minute. And it's doing a bunch of other stuff as Mm. well. I basically got to the limit of the Arduino, so I couldn't actually do anything else without just corrupting the board. So any further development or addition of features would require just going fully onto custom circuits and stuff. Yeah, which I imagine is expensive and time-consuming. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's chat about scuba diving. Uh, it was an incredible, incredible opportunity, and I'm really lucky to have been able to do it. 
Uh, but basically, as many of you listeners would know, I uh, grew up in Kenya, and Kenya happens to have a very big, lovely coast. And my mother happens to be a marine biologist, so she managed to get me in contact with some people who were doing a survey in Msambweni, which is a small kind of like town in on the Kenyan coast. And they were basically surveying a bunch of coral reefs that had never been surveyed before, which in of itself is very cool. That's that's so it's so cool. Yeah, and I just kind of tagged along as the student with the weird project. Everyone was very interested in it, which was very cool. Um, some incredible, incredible scientists, and it was basically two teams. It was the fish team, and it was the coral team. I was with the fish team because the coral team just kind of pick a spot and stare at the ground for a while. Uh, not to insult them, they do important work, but the fish team involved a lot of going around and I wanted to really test the extent of what this device could do. And it was, yeah, it was it was amazing. I did eight dives, uh, I took it with me on six of them, and I kind of monitored a whole variety of different species to test what I what my own skills were as a citizen scientist, but also what the device's capacity was in terms of measuring different things. And I got really great feedback from the people I was working with. They all really liked the product. They had a lot of questions. They had a lot of kind of concerns that came up. The big one was the fact that the thing doesn't have a camera on it. Oh, okay. Which is an interesting one, actually. Yeah, I guess I guess photos would be. Just pictures say a thousand words. You know? Exactly. So they, they felt they didn't want the photos to cancel out the physical data recording, but they felt that the big thing that would kind of make scientists feel more comfortable with it is if you, as a citizen scientist, weren't really sure, you could just take a picture and then when it goes to the researcher, they can say, oh, I saw 16 of these whatevers, and here's the photo of some of them. And then the researcher can go, ooh, that's the wrong thing. I'm going to ignore that data or whatever, you know? Mm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so it actually makes a lot of sense. And I actually originally was going to do a camera, but I didn't include it because it was just going to be so expensive. And I worried that a really little sensor like you have to work with Arduinos and stuff would just not actually gather any photo that's worth anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Which is probably fair, but again, in a in a final product as opposed to a prototype, there's a lot more opportunity. Oh yeah, of course. Um, on your dive, did you see anything like really cool? Just out of interest. Um, I mean, there wasn't anything like kind of you know mind blowingly. Oh my god, that was incredible. Of you know, it was classic kind of tropical coral reef environment. Some really beautiful corals. Surprisingly, a lot more alive than I thought they would be. Lots of little reef fish doing their reef fish things. I made a point of trying to look for nudibranchs, which are basically little sea slugs that are really cute. Yeah, I did see a few. They're quite fun. I saw a... There was a type of sea cucumber that had feet. It was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. It was eating, and it basically like extended all these little feelers that were grabbing stuff. And I'd never seen that before, so that was quite fun. Mm. Lots of very cool stuff, and just kind of some incredible photos I got. And I posted some of them on Instagram, so you can go take a look at those if you want. Also, I have a bunch of pictures of my product and stuff there too. Yeah, we'll have probably have one on on the cover for this this episode and link to your to yours with even more. Absolutely, of course. Um, most of the other fish were pretty standard, cool. I'm just looking through some of my photos now. No, just very pretty, honestly. In general, everything was kind of incredible, and it was very incredible to be able to test test my stuff actually you know go out and go ooh, this is this is something else this is very cool mm. no i i do i do love that you went and probably did it because I, I knew you were saying at your um design show that often people were coming up to and not even realizing that the footage that you were playing on the screen behind you was literally you using your product actually on a reef yeah 
Exactly. I, I, so I've got this little video I made. Again, it'll be on my Instagram, which of course we'll link. But I think a lot of people assumed it was kind of a bunch of stock footage that I pulled together to suggest like how it would work. But then they look a bit closer and they realize the thing in my hands in the picture, in the video is the thing in front of them. Yeah, it's it's cool. And then I guess quite a lot of people were like, oh, where did you do this? Off the coast of Brighton. And you go, no, Kenya. And that's... Yeah, exactly. Oh, that, that was a fun one, especially when someone's like, oh, you know, oh, it must have been really cold. And I was like, no, the water was 32 degrees. <laughs> I was positively toasty. It was lovely. Uh, yeah, it's, it is incredible. Yeah, no, it was, it was an absolute incredible experience. And I got to meet and talk with some really, really, really interesting people. A lot of people expressed interest in kind of like doing some kind of pilot program with a slightly more developed prototype. So this one as it stands isn't like I, I, I can use it. I can give it to a marine biologist to use, but I think if you gave it to a citizen scientist, they'd struggle quite a bit. So the next step is if I get a little investment, which is kind of what I'm hoping to do is just a bit of money, like definitively less than 10,000 um, pounds, which in the business scheme of things is not much. Basically create another prototype and it would be custom circuit board. It would be a full size LCD screen kind of like what you see in an iPhone 8 but same concept otherwise just four buttons on off switch and it would mean that there could be some visuals of like this is the exact fish you're looking for and whatever and I'd probably program it specifically to one environment so say it was Kenya uh, I'd program it for coral reefs in Kenya I'd see if I could put a camera on it and then if I got that investment I'd be able to make five to ten of them mm. Uh, which I'd then distribute to some citizen science organization or research organization or somebody who is an interested party and start to gather some, some data and see what it does well and what it does badly. And then, you know, if it's successful, it's the kind of thing that you can approach a big research organization and suggest that they mass manufacture these to give out where they're needed. But yeah, that's that's where we're at, really. Yeah, I mean... Hopefully you can uh, do a little bit more development on it because, as you said earlier, there's not that much competition. So it's. Um... I don't think it's something that'll ever make a whole lot of money. I don't think it's... It's quite expensive to build. It's very, very niche. I don't think consumers in general will buy it. Mm. Um, but it is the kind of thing that has the potential to have a massive impact. And if there is an interested party who wants to buy 10 to 50 of them and then go to a scuba diving school and give them to the school who can then give them out to their customers then you're suddenly gathering data two three times a day mm. from a whole bunch of people who are just on holiday even if they're only there for three days they're going to a place that's there 24 7 and then suddenly you have all this information being picked up so it actually has that kind of potential which is exciting which is very exciting but it is definitely not a money-making thing which can make it a bit of a harder sell for some people yeah i can imagine it's the sort of thing that dive schools dive clubs i guess like that might buy one or two of the people can like borrow when they go out on a dive because i imagine that's probably how most sort of recreational divers go about it they just sort of i imagine quite a lot of people don't even have their own equipment they might have their own wetsuit but they'll sort of go and hire it from their dive club wherever they are yeah it tends to so that the the thing that most people buy is a mask and snorkel is usually the first thing mm -hmm. just because your own mask that you look after the lenses aren't scratched it's comfortable on your face all that kind of thing that's the most important thing it's what i have i i also bought boots because my feet are funky and if they're not really fitting in the wetsuits <laughs> nicely then i get annoyed so i bought boots but that's not very common 
Uh, and then the next thing is usually a regulator because that's the bit you put in your mouth. Um, and that's the bit that is the most safety important. So if you don't trust wherever you're going, you use your own. But like almost nobody owns tanks. Like why would you? They're massive. They're heavy. I imagine they're quite expensive and it's probably expensive to fill up as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, no, I don't know anybody who owns scuba tanks. Even the professional scuba divers who I know, like, none of them own them. They just go and rent them for almost no money. You know, it's very cheap to rent one. Yeah. Uh, and then it's not your bother to service and maintain and fill and all that stuff. Yeah. So it would be perfect for dive clubs. You could easily have a few devices at one and they just give them out to their members. Or dive schools could say, oh, we're going to do this dive today Would for an extra £10. Would you like to take this citizen science device down and help conserve? And I think most people would say yes. I think they would, because I think a lot of people that are doing that sort of thing, I mean, they're going to be interested in going down and seeing what they can see. And yes, if they absolutely. can make a record of it, even better. That, w- that was a big thing I identified from kind of like looking at users and stuff was everybody is very, very aware of the fact that what they look at underwater is under severe threat if not disappearing already you know Mm. because well yeah if you if you you know if you have ever gone snorkeling and you have any concept of kind of climate change and how it's affecting the ocean and overfishing you realize wow i should really enjoy this while i can you know yeah i guess it makes it a very special moment and it does so that can very easily translate to making, you know, a difference and trying to get involved. Yeah, I was going to say, just the, like, sort of, I guess almost, it's not silence, but when you're down there, you can't be, like, chatting to people, you can't be on your phone. You're, I guess you're very in the moment when you're down there. I, does that make it feel more exclusive and special when you go diving? It might do, honestly. It's The silence is, you know, as someone, I'm generally not a fan of silence. I, I talk a lot. I talk to people a lot. I listen to music, all those kind of things. But when I'm scuba diving, it is just my bubbles, you know? Yeah. As I mean, it's like, it's not silent, but it's kind of white noise, I guess, to you. It's just a lot of Yeah, your water. ears fill with water, so you kind of, everything's a bit muted, and then it's just the bubbles of your own breathing. And yeah, you know, you can kind of make, you can go like, mm, and other people will hear it, but you can't speak. Mm. And communication is limited to really basic hand signals, and then if there is something more important to convey and you happen to be with a scientist, they'll have a slate, and you just write whatever you want to say. Okay, yeah. But funnily enough, that was actually one of my design ideas. Way at the beginning of this, when I was going into, yes, I want to design for scuba diving, one of the ideas was a communication device. Yeah, I guess that's... So it was going to be some kind of thing that you could, like, fold slats over. You know know those, like, in school, when you were, like, learning about prefixes and suffixes to words... And you had like the five flip books and you could fold them and change the word. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to do that essentially, but it would be like, you know, the first thing would be I, you, we, and then the second one would be like up, down, look, stop, go, what, you know, the basics. Mm. And then the third one would be right, left, up, down, whatever. So you could basically go, I stop now, or you go left or whatever. And it would just let you create very simple directions which is so much beyond what you can already do. That was the idea. It's quite a cool idea because it doesn't have to be like full sentences at all. Does it? It's just like the very basic structure that gets the message across. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, copyright. I might do that still. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, this this became the idea instead, and I have absolutely loved it as a project. It's been very mm. fun. Yeah, that's one thing. I was probably a nice sort of wrap up thing is I with my project. I I loved it. I loved all the research I did on mine. Um, if you haven't 
seen about my one. If you go back to ep- series one, I think it's episode nine was when I talked about my one about moss walls. Yep. Um, but yeah, I really loved the research. I learned so much interesting because again, mine was nat- nature based, which is you know the link between our, our two here. And I learned so much like really cool science and natural information basically from doing it and it was really cool i gotta say you did an extraordinary amount of research well that was one of the problems with my project i did too much research and then was rushed at the end but uh, yeah covid didn't help with that though because i then you then got cut off earlier than it was supposed to and yeah that's not not ideal i was i was lucky that covid had minimal impact on mine uh obviously i did end up having a lot of like online meetings and stuff but i had the workshops when i needed Mm. them and i had the ability to fly to a foreign country yeah (laughs) yeah on a happier note, uh, thank you so much for listening to the little story of my final project. It's been an absolute blast to mm, work on. It's been really interesting to listen to. Uh, and I'm going to continue things. So, you know, if you personally, as a listener, have any interest in what it is, you please reach out to me. Uh, my Instagram is obviously linked through our Instagram, which is at assemble.it. And there'll be lots of photos and links and whatever. And you can just send a DM if you'd like. Uh, But yeah, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. Uh, If you've enjoyed this one, please share it with your family, friends, co-workers, and your scorpion fish. Uh, Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts don't have an algorithm, and we really rely on your word of mouth as our listeners. Yes, we do. So, yep, follow us on Instagram at assemble.it, as Papa said. Um, And we'll be posting pictures of this, and you see other bits and bobs from our our work and our goings-on. And yeah, links to Pablo's page with all his stuff on there as well. Absolutely. And remember once more to subscribe and share it with your friends, family, co-workers and your scorpion fish. Uh, We'll see you soon with our next episode. Yes. Thank you for listening and thank you for your patience waiting for the next episode. Indeed. And we've got some exciting stuff coming up and we will share more about that soon. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samuelis and George Wyeth. And this episode is edited by Pablo Samuelis. Music is by Mikey Burtwistle. This is a 76 podcasting production. A bi-weekly design podcast where we discuss a range of topics from tech, industrial... Actually, it's fucking funny to say it's a bi-weekly design podcast. <laughs> it's really not. Um, a formerly bi-weekly <laughs> design podcast. Uh,